So today's first Bible reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Now here here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, he was in a contented mood. He went to lie down and at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not, sorry, you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night and in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For he said, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Then he said, bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law who said, how did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, he gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And the second Bible reading is from, uh, the second Bible reading is from the New Testament, And it's um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5 to 12. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil. 
brothers and sisters, we worked hard, we worked day and night so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also, how pure, upright and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father, we thank you that you teach us who you are. Uh, That's at the heart of what it is that you want us to know who you are, your grace and your kindness towards us and to all people in the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, as we continue to unpack this book of Ruth together tonight, we ask that you'll be at work by your spirit uh, in our hearts as you promised that you are, so that you might draw us nearer to you and give us a clearer and clearer vision of your goodness and your kindness and your grace toward us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Melbourne Park Hotel has been in the news uh, for all the wrong reasons this week. We've actually just prayed about it just a few minutes ago a little bit. Uh, It's where tennis star Novak Djokovic was temporarily detained when his visa was declined on entry to Australia. It's also at the same time where 32 refugees and asylum seekers are being detained and in some cases have been detained there now for nine years. Uh, One of them is uh, the guy you see here, uh, Mehdi Ali, who arrived in Australia from his native Iran, aged 15. Uh, He's actually been formally recognised as a legitimate refugee by the federal government, uh, and yet is still being held in immigration detention nine years later. Uh, Last week, uh, he tweeted these words. It's so sad that so many journalists contacted me yesterday to ask me about Djokovic. I've been in a cage for nine years. I turned 24 today, and all you want to talk to me about is that pretending to care by asking me how I am and then straight away asking questions about Djokovic. What makes the contrast between the circumstances of the people there in that hotel together, the tennis star on the one hand and these refugees, what makes the contrast between them so striking is what it is that they're seeking. Djokovic is seeking sporting glory, whereas Mehdi and his fellow detainees are seeking refuge. They're seeking safety, seeking security. They've come to this country looking for a new place to call home. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with seeking sporting glory if God gives you the gifts for that. And as far as I'm aware, none of us in this room are seeking sporting glory. Anyone know anyone online seeking sporting glory? Most of us can't really relate to that particular quest, can we? Seeking refuge, on the other hand, searching for security, looking for experiences of home, that's actually a universal human experience. Uh, You and I might live in very different circumstances to those detained in the Park Hotel, but we can relate to the search that's driven them here to Australia, can't we? Uh, Whether it's uh, money or relationship or reputation or power or whatever else you choose, we're all searching for something that can give us safety and security. Uh, Ruth chapter 3 that uh, Livia's just read for us is about exactly that same search. It's right there in verse 1. Let me read it for you again. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Uh, Ruth's need for security has been obvious, actually, from the very beginning of the book of Ruth, if you've been reading along with us. Uh, Her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, was, if you like, an an economic refugee who moved to Moab when her native Israel was struck by famine. Uh, She's come home now to Israel because her husband had died along with her two sons, one of whom was married to Ruth, the Moabite. Both women are now widows and therefore, particularly in an ancient patriarchal context, without anyone to provide for them. Ruth decides in in boldness and trust to return to Israel with Naomi, despite the fact that she's going to be a foreigner there. 
She dedicates herself to Naomi and to Naomi's God. Both of these women need security. And so just as her mother-in-law became an economic refugee in Moab, now Ruth becomes a refugee in Israel, seeking a new home. Nevertheless, always, despite being family to Naomi, remaining an outsider to the Israelite community there. Uh, When Naomi says uh, there in verse 1, so that it may be well with you, what she has in mind, of course, is the security of a marriage. A marriage that will mean that Ruth is, is fully provided for by her husband and through him becomes a full member of Israel, fully integrated into Israelite society with, hopefully, children also to care for her in her old age. She needs a home. She needs refuge. She needs security. She needs safety. And in chapter 3, these two really quite remarkable women, Naomi and Ruth, uh, take matters into their own hands. They can see before them a path to safety and security, and so they make a plan to get there. Uh, What transpires in this chapter uh, poses three questions for us too as we each in our own way seek refuge. Uh, Firstly, what is it that you will risk for refuge? Secondly, where is it that you will look for refuge? And thirdly, what hope actually is there that you will find refuge? What will you risk for refuge? Where will you look for refuge? What hope is there that you will find it? Those are going to be our three headings this evening. Point one. Uh, So Naomi comes up with this plan, and it's actually incredibly risky. Let me read uh, about it again for you, uh, verse 2. Now here, she says, is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Anyone else going out to winnow barley at the threshing floor this evening? Anyone? No? Not something we do that often anymore. We've got other people who do that in other places, right, so that we don't have to worry about all that kind of stuff. What Naomi's doing here is reminding Ruth that she's already had an interaction with a man who could be their ticket out, right, their relative Boaz. Uh, Winnowing and threshing, for those of you like me who don't know anything about farming or how to do really actually any useful work at all, uh, winnowing and threshing refers to the process of separating out the edible grains of wheat from the inedible husks, uh, and it takes place at the threshing floor, a hard, flat surface at at a high point outside the city wall where there's a breeze to blow away the husks. Now, it's harvest time, and so Naomi knows that that's where Boaz is going to be with his workers, at the threshing floor. And so she says, remember, Boaz, your kinsman, who's been feeding us by letting you glean in his fields, there's another opportunity to meet him. But this time it's not going to be by chance. In chapter 2, Ruth just happens to be picking grain in the field where Boaz is, in Boaz's field. Not by chance this time, they make a plan. Here's her plan, it's there in verse 3 for us. Now, wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Uh, Now, when you start to unpack this a little bit, it's really hard to overestimate just how risky a plan this is. Basically, everything could go wrong at almost any moment. So what Naomi does to tell Ruth to make herself as attractive as possible and then to go and find out where Boaz is in the dark, then to wait until after he's gone to sleep, after having dinner and beer with his workers at the end of a hard day's work, and sneak up to his bed and uncover his feet and then just lie down next to him until he wakes up to see what happens. So much could go wrong. She's a young woman dressed to impress and she walks out of the city gates into the dead of night. 
Add to that the reality that the threshing floor at harvest time was known as a place of sexual infidelity. Prostitutes would often go down to offer their services to the young men who were working there away from their families for a few nights as they did the harvesting work. Naomi and Boaz both, uh, earlier on in chapter 2, have warned uh, Ruth that that the other young men who are working in the fields might well take advantage of her if she finds herself alone. Stick with the women who who I've got here, Boaz says, so that you're safe. Then after all of that, right, dangerous enough in and of itself, after all that she's to go to a man's bed in the dark and mess with his blankets. Uh, The idea is that uh, the the cool breeze blowing over the threshing floor will wake him up because his legs are uncovered, right, he's going to get cold, you know, and, and get some goosebumps and wake up surprised by the coldness so that he notices her lying then there at the end of her bed. But, of course, the gesture could be very easily misconstrued. Uh, the whole book of Ruth and actually kind of just the way Hebrew narrative in the Old Testament works, um, this is a really great example of it, uh, the whole book of Ruth is just so clever as a narrative in the way that it makes allusions to pick up along the way. You see, the Hebrew word there for feet, to uncover Boaz's feet, uh, is often used as a euphemism for male genitalia. Uh, Here in Ruth, uh, something really interesting is happening. A slightly different expression is used from when that phrase is used euphemistically. Uh, Ruth's not making a sexual advance here, but actually the writer's just alerting us to the danger that her plan really could be interpreted that way. And if it is interpreted that way, then there's two things that could happen, right? On the one hand, Boaz might actually just take it as a sexual advance and take advantage of Ruth, leaving her broken and shamed. Or, on the other hand, he might recoil in disgust at a sexual advance and essentially ruin her reputation and any chance of livelihood and marriage that she might have down the track. In addition, of course, Ruth and Naomi are living hand-to-mouth from whatever Ruth can glean of the leftover barley from Boaz's fields each day. And so if she offends him, she actually risks losing her livelihood as well. It's a bold, daring plan, and none of this would have been lost on Ruth as Naomi lays it out before her. How does Ruth respond to this plan? She says to Naomi, not a chance. Get stuffed. I'm not doing that. No, that's not what she says at all, is it? Verse 5, Ruth said to her, all that you tell me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. It's hard to overestimate, again, just what it is that Ruth is committing herself to here. She willingly takes on the risk of all of these things. She risks her own safety, she risks her well-being, she risks her reputation, she risks her livelihood because she needs refuge, she needs security, she needs a home. I wonder if uh, in uh, similar circumstances perhaps you might be willing to risk your own personal safety, your well-being, your reputation, your livelihood on the off chance that it might lead to actually a better, safer life. Most of us couldn't even contemplate it. In part, the reason that that most of us couldn't even contemplate it is that most of us have never had to actually make a choice like that, at least not like Ruth walking out of the city in the dark of the night or like an asylum seeker jumping on a boat. But the other reason that most of us couldn't even contemplate something like this is because so often the very things that Ruth is risking for safety and security are the very things that we think will make us safe and secure, aren't they? Our own personal safety, our health and well-being, our reputation, our livelihood. We imagine that these things can save us, but of course they can't. And if you thought they could, well, a good old-fashioned pandemic ought to do the trick, hey, to teach you a lesson. Of course, the odds are that in 18 months' time, uh, even a pandemic won't have taught us the lesson right deep down in our hearts. But it's true, we know those things can't save us. And yet to risk them, to risk them is really hard because part of us thinks that they can. But Ruth actually just sees more clearly than that. She has the clarity that actually really only desperation, desperate circumstances can give. 
There's only one way that she can see forward to get safety and security. And since she and Naomi actually have nothing, she risks everything to go and get it. But where exactly is she looking? What, what does she actually think she'll find? Where is she going for refuge? Point two. Uh, remarkably, Naomi's highly risky plan actually works. It's, it's, it should be a surprise as you read this. Really, this plan worked? It did. And it not only works, it actually goes off completely without a hitch. Everything happens exactly as it's supposed to happen. Pick up with me in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, uh, he was in a contented mood, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. And he said, quite, you know, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? He said, who are you? So far, so good. But you see, what Ruth does next actually raises the stakes even higher, makes it even more risky. Naomi instructed her to wait for Boaz to tell her what to do, but instead, Ruth decides to take this moment, this question he asks her about who she is, to actually tell Boaz what to do. Verse 9 continues, she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. He's given her the chance to speak by, by uh, asking her her name, and so she decides just to carry on. She says, spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. Ruth wants to make sure that this moment doesn't slip away, you see. She answers his question and takes the opportunity to launch into what is effectively a proposal of marriage, one which makes it very hard for Boaz to reject. She says, spread your cloak over your servant. It's a, it's a metaphor that was fairly commonly known in ancient Israel for marriage. You spread your cloak over someone means that, that they share what you share. They come underneath your protection, if you like. Uh, but Ruth means even more than that. Uh, you see, the Hebrew word for cloak is the same word uh, that's used for wing, for the wing of a bird. Uh, Ruth is pointedly alluding to Boaz's own prayer at their first meeting in chapter 2. Back in chapter 2, he prayed, May the Lord reward you for your deeds. And may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Uh, Ruth's effectively saying to Boaz, was that prayer, was that just really polite, pious words? Or are you willing actually to become the answer to your own prayer? Will you be my safety and security? Will you be my refuge? Uh, Ruth's taking a huge risk here. Just think for a moment about the upside down nature of this situation. The woman proposes to the man. Not that weird for us here and now. Very weird in an ancient patriarchal society. The woman proposes to the man. The poor one proposes to the rich one. The foreigner proposes to the native. But remarkably, somehow, Boaz understands exactly what's going on. He doesn't respond, actually, by saying, no, 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 this is not how it's supposed to go. And he doesn't think it's a sexual proposition. He recognises it for what it is, a proposal of marriage. He actually praises her for her loyalty, presumably her loyalty to Naomi. He sees that she's been willing to risk everything to gain the refuge that she and Naomi, her mother-in-law, so desperately need. He even thanks her for honouring him with her proposal. Uh, rather, he says, than going after a younger man her, her own age, whether a poor one for the sake of love or a rich one for the sake of money. Uh, the fact that Boaz uh, points out uh, how unlikely, perhaps, a candidate for marriage to Ruth he might be uh, raises another question for us. Why is it that Naomi and Ruth have gone after this man, Boaz, and not sought marriage with someone else? Uh, firstly, we know that Boaz is a man of good standing, known for his kindness. The, the narrator has told us that already, and we've seen it in action. 
secondly, his own lavish generosity to Ruth, uh, though, always respectful and unassuming, seems to indicate that he's got a little more than, than disinterested kind of, you know, um, you know uh, compassion for, for Ruth going on here. He's pretty interested in her as well, which makes it all a little bit more likely to happen. But thirdly, and most importantly, and this is what Ruth underscores in her proposal, Boaz stands in a particular kind of relationship to Naomi and therefore also to Ruth. It's that relationship that Ruth invokes in her proposal. Why should Boaz spread his wing over her? For you are next of kin. Uh, The Hebrew word translated next of kin here in this passage is actually uh, derived from the word that the Old Testament prophets use for redemption. Uh, It means the one who has the right to redeem. Uh, The word in Hebrew, if you're a Hebrew fan, the word in Hebrew is goel. I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it's basically that, goel. Uh, It's actually a legal term in the Old Testament. Uh, It refers to a person whose whose job, whose, whose obligation, whose duty is to redeem a relative who's fallen into slavery or to buy back land that a relative has had to sell in order to pay their debts or just to pay off a relative's debts directly or even to avenge the death of a relative. Now, Naomi knows it's about Boaz already. It's the first thing that she said about Boaz when Ruth told her back in chapter 2 whose field it was that she'd been gleaning in. Uh, uh, Naomi says, uh, he's one of our nearest kin, using this same word. Uh, But you see, this is a risk too, to invoke this relationship at this point in a proposal of marriage. Because it turns out that nowhere else in the Old Testament law is the goel, the, the kinsman redeemer, as it's sometimes translated, nowhere else is this person required to marry a, a relative's widow. It's the relative himself, the, the, the man involved in the situation, of course, uh, who, uh, who they have responsibilities to, not to, not to their widows. And knowing that Boaz is a man who embodies the kindness of God, you see, Naomi has staked everything in this plan on the hope that Boaz will fulfill not just the letter of the law, but see that his obligation to his family goes deeper. She wants him to fulfill not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law to respond not just with legal niceties, but actually with grace and kindness and goodness out of compassion and love for his family. Again, remarkably, it works. Boaz gets what's being asked of him. He understands. And so he responds, uh, verse 13, And now, my daughter, a respectful term of endearment, now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do all that you ask. He concludes his speech, As the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Uh, Here's why it is that Ruth risks everything in this encounter. See, she knows that risking her safety, her well-being, her reputation, her livelihood is worth it in order to gain a redeemer, someone who can lift her out of her impossible predicament. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But first, I think it's worth noting here as well the connection that, that Ruth invites Boaz to make, and us as well as the readers, between God's blessing and God's people. Boaz prays that Ruth will find refuge under the wings of God, and she does find refuge under the wings of God, under the wings of Boaz. God answers Boaz's prayer and meets Ruth's needs through his faithful people. And it turns out it doesn't take being a Christian for very long at all to work out that that's actually a lot of the time that's the case. That's how God answers our prayers, through the faithfulness of his people. Often they're not answered through miraculous intervention, but through acts of kindness and care and compassion and love and sometimes even rebuke from our sisters and brothers in the Lord. That's what church is, actually, a community in which we seek to embody the kindness and grace of God to one another in loving care. 
It's what Paul expresses to the Thessalonians. In the other reading that we had earlier on, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you've become very dear to us. And so, you see, in our own life, just as in Boaz becoming the answer to his own prayer, every meal that we cook for one another, every laugh that we share, every encouragement spoken, every shoulder cried on, every loan given, each one is an answer to the prayers of God's people. Each one is the fulfilment of God's own kindness and goodness through his people to one another. And so Naomi and Ruth and Boaz teach us uh, two things, actually, about that kind of God-shaped, grace-filled community life together. Uh, Firstly, if you want to see God answer your prayers for safety and security, then actually you need to open your own heart and your life to your sisters and brothers. Uh, Naomi and Ruth risk themselves to seek the refuge that comes to them then through God's faithful uh, servant, Boaz. Uh, And another word, of course, for risk is vulnerability, isn't it? If you want to see God answer your prayers, you need to risk being vulnerable with his people. Secondly, if you want to see God answer your prayers for the safety, the security, the well-being of others who you love, then you need to be ready to be the answer to your own prayers for them. Boaz prays that Ruth will find refuge and then discovers actually that he's the very means by which God is going to answer that prayer. And so as you pray for others, you need to be asking the Spirit to help you actually imagine what an answer to that prayer might look like for that person and perhaps to show you how you might actually be part of the solution, be able to, uh, to contribute to it as well. So often God's faithfulness comes through his people. That's what Ruth and Naomi discover from Boaz here. Uh, Ruth risks everything to gain a redeemer who can provide refuge, but uh, her kinsman redeemer doesn't actually redeem her right away, does he? Uh, What he does instead is to give her a promise, and it's a promise, actually, uh, that generates hope for Naomi. Point three, where where is the actual, what what hope is there that this might actually happen for you and for me as well? What hope is there for refuge? Uh, You see, Ruth's uh, bold and really utterly brilliant execution of this plan is what takes centre stage in this chapter. Most of this chapter is about Ruth and her interaction with Boaz. But chapter three, just like the book as a whole, actually, begins and ends with Naomi. In fact, it isn't only Ruth who needs to find, oh, finds a redeemer in order to provide refuge, it's Naomi as well. Uh, before Ruth goes home to Naomi, uh, Boaz gives her a gift. We read about it in verse 15. Uh, he says, bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Uh, the, the commentators uh, who know the Hebrew language much better than I do uh, debate about exactly how much six measures of barley is here, but it's probably quite a lot. Uh, and so it's a generous gift, and it also teaches us if, uh, if you needed to add anything to how great Naomi is in terms of her character, that she's probably pretty buff too, actually, to be able to carry it all. She's the whole package. He sends her this, this generous gift away with her, but it's actually not until Ruth reports all of this to Naomi that the significance of the gift becomes clear. Verse 17, Ruth says to Naomi, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You see, this isn't actually a gift for Ruth at all. It's a gift for Naomi. It's a bride price. That's what it is. It's a tangible token to Ruth's parent, her mother-in-law, of his promise to take her as his wife. But it goes even beyond that. It is that. It is a promise. It is a bride price, a promise and a pledge to marry Ruth. But for Naomi, it actually comes and and meets an even deeper need that she has. You see, the Hebrew text here literally reads, uh, not you must go back empty-handed, 
but you must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. Now, do you remember how Naomi described herself when she arrived back in Bethlehem from Moab, all the way back in chapter 1? She says, I went away to Moab. I, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. You see, Boaz is becoming the answer to his own prayer for Ruth. He's becoming the, the answer actually to Naomi's prayers for Ruth and for herself as well. He's the kinsman redeemer who will provide safety and security and refuge for them. And through him, Naomi, who was empty, is going to be full again. And armed with that promise, actually, Naomi's the one who has the last word in this chapter. And it's a word of confident hope. Verse 18, she says, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. She sees the promise here, and she knows actually that it's not just Boaz's faithfulness to Ruth and to her, but it's God's faithfulness to her prayers as well. She knows that it's as good as done. The promise is sure. Uh, Naomi and Ruth are seeking security and safety, and, and as we've mentioned, it's a deeply human journey, isn't it? It's one that we all share, each in our own different ways. And now, given Naomi's cautiously triumphant conclusion to this chapter, we're left to ask the question for ourselves. Is there any hope that I might find this as well, that I might find home, that I might find security and safety and refuge? Will I find a kinsman redeemer to provide refuge for me as well? Naomi's confident hope is all the more remarkable because it comes in the context of a new complication that gets added to the story. Boaz declares that he will do what Ruth has asked, except he also adds a caveat. Chapter, uh, verse 12. Uh, but now, though it's true that I'm a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. You see, it turns out that Boaz has a competitor. There's someone else who's first in line to provide refuge to Ruth and Naomi, should he choose to. Someone else, if you like, poised to swoop in at the last minute as the kinsman redeemer and save the day. Now, I'll have to wait until next week to see how the issue is resolved for Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. But there's a hint there in those words of the hope that's held out to you and to me as well. Boaz says, there is another kinsman redeemer. And you see, there is one who's come to us as well. There's one in whom the promise of refuge is not just for one woman and her mother-in-law, but for every woman and every man and every child, for you and for me and for the whole world. Because that's what Jesus has become to us. A brother, a family member, close to us, standing ready to buy us back from slavery and to repay every debt and to take us into his own home. But you see, unlike Boaz, Jesus didn't wait to be asked. And unlike Boaz, he didn't just lift us up, but he came down to us. The Almighty One stepped into our world. He lived our life. He died our death. Where Ruth saw her need for refuge and risked everything to gain a redeemer, Jesus saw our need for refuge and risked everything to become our Redeemer. He gave up his security to give us ours. He left the safety of his Father's side to bring us home as his bride. He emptied himself so that we could be filled. And he's given us, just as Boaz does with Ruth and Naomi, he gives us a promise and a token. He gives us his own spirit living in us as a down payment so that we can live in the sure and certain hope that just as he was raised, so we will be raised when he comes again to once and for all fill the emptiness of every broken human heart. And you see, what that's going to do for you, what that's going to do for us, as that hope by the Spirit lives in our hearts, is that we'll more and more become people who are willing to risk ourselves like he's risked himself for us. 
people who worry less and less about those things that can never guarantee safety or security, well-being, reputation, livelihood. But instead, we can become people who expend ourselves in fighting injustice and speaking for the voiceless, in opening our hearts and lives to others, in humble vulnerability, in providing for others with extravagant generosity, in taking one another under our own wings as he's taken us under his and all the while boldly holding out to our friends and family and neighbours and colleagues the invitation to come and find refuge here with us in him. And it's all because our kinsman redeemer has come. There is another redeemer, Jesus, our saviour. We've found refuge in him and his promise to us is sure. Let's pray that God would drive that into our hearts and make us more and more his children. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he didn't wait. He didn't stand off waiting for, uh, for an invitation to become a redeemer to us. No, he was there even before we knew that, he, that we needed him. We all, all of us in our own way, long for home. We long for safety. We long for security. And so, Father, we thank you that you've provided it to us in him. We're in awe of the way that he left his own home to come here and make a home with us and bring us into his own family. Father, as we see what it's meant for him to give himself in order to become our redeemer, we ask that you would shape and change our hearts so that actually we know that we have everything in him and therefore we can risk everything in order to love and serve as he has loved and served. Father, drive this joyful gospel deep into our hearts so that we might more and more honour him in all that we do as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.